Let's turn again to our Bibles. First John chapter one, we're going to begin at verse five. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read through our entire text this morning, verses 5 through 10 of 1 John 1, and then we'll go back and take a look at it piece by piece, but you'll just get a vision for just how majestic this text is as we take a look at it right now. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now back at verse 5, John just begins this passage in the most majestic way you can think of. He starts off in verse 5 telling us that this is the message which we've heard from God and declare to you. Now I was sitting with a friend uh, yesterday just kind of talking to him about the text that I was going to be going through this week. And we kind of went through here and I kind of picked out that I could preach 11 sermons just in the four or five verses that we've gone through today. I mean, there's so much here. There's so much here for us to consider. And and there's so many things I'm just going to be touching on this morning that we could go on and talk for for a whole sermon on. And and the first thing that we listen, I could preach a whole sermon on this whole idea in verse 5 where he says, this is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you. My friends, John isn't just making this up. You know how sometimes you get together with people and you decide to start talking about some of the deep things like God or religion or spirituality. And somebody says, well, you know, I think God is like this. Well, you know, I think we should be doing this in religion. Well, I think God is like this. Can I just share with you? Who cares what any of us thinks? What matters is the God who is really there and how he's revealed himself to him. I mean, you might say that God is like a, a combo plate at a Mexican restaurant and you'd be wrong. And who cares if you think that that's what God's like? My personal opinion, your personal opinion, really doesn't amount to much, does it? But my friends, what God has revealed to us about himself, that's what's important. And John isn't making this up. This isn't his own personal opinions. These aren't his own personal ideas about God. This is God's message about himself. He says, which we have heard from him, and now he's revealing it to us. He says, and we now declare it to you. What John is going to tell us about God is what God has told us about himself. You know, we can't be confident in our own opinions, in our own ideas about God, unless they're founded on what God has told us about himself. And he's going to lay out such a fundamental principle about who God is. And you need to catch on to this. You get one thing from this morning's message. Focus in on this in verse 5. Because he's going to tell you something about God. Listen to what he says about who God is. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, here it is, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. You know, I love the Apostle John because he lays out to us more clearly and more straightforwardly than anybody in the Bible who God is. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, he reveals to us the words of Jesus. And he says, God is spirit. Now that tells you something about God, doesn't he? That he's not flesh and blood like us, that he's spirit. And then he goes on to explain, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
And then later on in the epistle, John, this letter here that we're going to go on later on, he speaks about who God is. And he says, and you love this one, don't you? He says, God is love. Now that tells you about something about God, doesn't it? There's something about his being, about his character, that he's love. And right here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he tells you something about God, right? He says, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. My friends, let's understand this, that first of all, we've got to wipe away from our minds any of this idea of God that sometimes come to us from perhaps Eastern religions. You know, in Eastern religions, they teach that God is both light and darkness, that you have your good and evil, your plus and minus, your positive and negative, your yin and yang, and the whole thing comes together and the whole totality of it is God. And they say, if we could really understand, we'd understand that everything is God, everything good, everything evil. My friends, that's not the biblical understanding of who God is. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness, none at all. He is totally light. And you know, this really has an implication for our walk with him. Because, you know, let me just spell it out for you. And I, I hope I'm not being too bold or too straightforward with you. But I just need to spell it out. If there's something wrong with your relationship with God, you know whose fault it is? It's not his. He's light, and in him is no darkness at all. It's our fault. If there's something not right, not flowing, not intimate, not straight in our relationship with God, it's not his fault. He's God. In him is no darkness at all. He's incapable of sin. He's incapable of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. And because God is light, in him is no darkness at all. My friends, we need to latch on to this. Because sometimes we doubt that. You know, this kind of brings us up face to face. It's one of the big questions that have bothered people from time immemorial. Back in the time of Job, this bothered people. And here's the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, that's a question for about five sermons, my friends. I can't go into it all in totality here. But I remember there was a book written by a Jewish rabbi that sought to grapple with this question. His name is Harold Kushner, and he sought to answer this question. You know the answer he basically came up with in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People? He said, God just can't fix everything. And we have to be understanding towards God. We have to forgive him. My friends, can I just tell you that any approach to relationship with God that assumes or even implies that God might be wrong or weak and perhaps must be forgiven by us, man, it's not there. At its root, it's blasphemous. And directly contradicts, you don't have anything, anything to forgive God for. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. My friends, if there's trouble with you and your relationship with God, it's not his fault. Reminds me of the story of this old couple driving down the street and they're driving in their car, you know, and they're in one of those old cars with the bent seat. And the husband's there driving, you know, and he's behind the wheel. And the wife is all the way over to the door, you know, and they're in some big old Buick or something. And there's about five feet of seat space between the husband and the wife. And they're driving down the road, you know, the, the, the wife sees the, and she sees all these young couples coming the other way. And the wife is all snuggled up to the husband, you know, and it's all very romantic. And she's got his arm around him or he's got his arm. And wow, there they are right next to each other. And she says, honey, why is it? You know, we used to ride like that all the time. Why is it that we're so far away? And the husband was a man of few words, and he just kind of 
frumfed, and he said, I didn't move. <laughs> well, friends, that's how it is in your relationship with God. If you're distant from him, it's not because he's moved, it's because you have. He's light, and in him is no darkness at all. And my friends, that's, we need to grab onto that. Now, notice this. This is going to bring the application of it here in verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, because God has no darkness at all, because he's light, if one claims to be in fellowship with God, in other words, if you claim to have a relationship with God, yet you walk in darkness, you're not telling the truth. You cannot walk in darkness and be having fellowship with God. Now, please notice the words that he uses in verse 6 very carefully, because this is essential. You have to grab onto this. He says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him. By the way, isn't it? Anybody can say they have fellowship with God, right? A lot of people say they have fellowship with God. That doesn't mean anything in and of itself. You say it, they say it, another person says it. We want to know if there's some meat behind those words. And John's going to tell us one way, not the only way, but one way we can see if there's some truth to that claim to having fellowship with God. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. Now, please notice the word he uses, walk in darkness. Because I'll tell you, each and every one of us sin every day. Each and every one of us falls short of the glory of God in what we say, do, or think in some way every day. And you might think, well, look, if I sin every day, if I have something that I need to be forgiven of before God every day, am I walking in darkness? And, and John would say no, because that word walk has behind it the idea of a pattern of living, of habitual sin, of something that you live in, of your environment. He isn't speaking of an occasional lapse but of a lifestyle of darkness. And my friends, if your life is a lifestyle of darkness, and if you say you're having fellowship with God, you're not telling the truth. You may be deceived, or you may know you're lying, but you're not telling the truth. So my friends, John is not saying that a Christian may not temporarily walk in darkness, but if he is, then his claim to fellowship with God is a sham and a lie. My friends, I want to know, are you in fellowship with God this morning? I'm not asking if you're saved. That can be another issue altogether. I mean, let's not talk about that. You might say, hey, I've got my fire insurance. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to hell. I'm protected. I've got the policy. I want to know, are you living a life of fellowship with God, of relationship with him? Is there a living, breathing, active relationship between you and God the Father, he's revealed in Jesus Christ. How can you know? Well, if you're walking in darkness, then you're not in relationship with God the Father. Now he goes on here, and he continues on the thought in verse 7, where he says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us, from all sin. In other words, if we'll walk in the light, if we have fellowship with him and walk after his ways, then we have fellowship. And did you notice it's kind of mind-blowing in verse 7 how he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, now you would expect him to say, we have fellowship with God, right? Wouldn't you expect him to say that? But what does he say? We have fellowship with one another. And that's marvelous. Friends, 
if you really have relationship with God, you're going to have relationship with God's people. That's all there is to it. You know, the folks who go around saying, you know, I have such a tight relationship with God. It's just I can't get along with any of his people. There's something wrong there, my friends. And John spells it out here. If you're walking in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, friends, I know there's all kinds of obstacles to fellowship with one another. You've probably been hurt by other Christians. You've probably been burned by other Christians. Other Christians have probably spoken evil of you or mistreated you. And I'm not trying to deny that hurt. I'm not trying to say that it isn't there and that you shouldn't be wounded. I'm just saying that there's a greater fact than the pain or the wounding you've received. And the greater fact is that you're walking in the light and you have fellowship with the same God that they're having fellowship with. And so he isn't denying that there's not things that can come in and potentially hinder our relationship with one another. But friend, you have a greater fact in Jesus Christ than any of those other things. And then he says, and this is so great, what he says in verse 7. Did you see this? He says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, if you're walking in the light, then you're having a continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ in your lives. Now, I don't know if you're really aware of this. I don't know if you're tied in with this idea, but you need to be. That we need a continual cleansing in our lives. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And actually, in the verb tense that the Apostle Paul used in Romans 3.23, what he's really saying there, in the fullest strength of it, is, for we all continually sin and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, we all do. I don't want to lay a big, heavy trip on everybody here. But probably, since you woke up this morning, you've sinned. Since you woke up... Now, some of you say, of course I sinned. You should have seen my wife and I fight on the way to church. <laughs> no, I wasn't in your car. I don't know you sinned that way. Said, of course I sinned. You should have seen me yelling at the kids to get ready. No, no, no. I'm saying even none of those things. Let me just ask you. Have you glorified God perfectly from the time you woke up this morning to right now when you're sitting here? Well, of course you're laughing. You say, how could God expect me to glorify him before I have my first cup of coffee in the morning? <laughs> we haven't even had donuts after church, and you expect me to glorify him? Well, yes, he is. I mean, God is worthy of perfect glory, perfect praise, perfect honor from us. In our time of worship that we had, I trust it was a meaningful time of worship to you and that you were able to genuinely offer a sacrifice of praise to God. But even if it was the most marvelous time of worship that you ever had, can anybody here say that they brought a perfect sacrifice of praise to God? That not for one moment your thoughts weren't distracted to lunch already. Look, it's, it's 9.30 in the morning, you're already thinking about lunch. And whatever it was in your mind, you were distracted, at least temporarily. You didn't bring a perfect sacrifice of praise. I didn't bring a perfect sacrifice of praise to God. I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what that means? It means I need to be cleansed. I need to be continually cleansed. You know, one of the most beautiful pictures of this, and I wish I had the time to go into it in fullness, but I'll just paint the picture for you briefly. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. 
When Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he's going around washing all their feet, and then finally he gets to Peter. And Peter thinks, well, you know, I figured this one out. I'm supposed to be so spiritual and tell Jesus that he can't wash my feet. So he says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Peter's thinking, yes, I got the right answer. You know, I'm going to be so much better than all the other disciples. And Jesus says, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. And then Peter says, you know, typical kind of obsessive compulsive guy that he was, always off on one extreme or another, he says, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He says, listen, you've already been cleansed. But once you've already been cleansed, then you just need to have your feet cleaned. You know, isn't that how it is when we have our sins forgiven by God? And many of you were very aware when you first came to Jesus Christ and entrusted your life to him, you felt like a load of guilt and sin was lifted off your shoulders and it was glorious. And you really are changed. You really are a different person after that. You've been washed clean. But my friends, every day you're walking around in a dusty world and your feet, so to speak, get dirty, don't they? And they need to be continually cleansed, continually washed. And this continual cleansing is ours, notice here in verse 7, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, not his literal blood. You don't need a drop or a molecule of the literal blood of Jesus to be somehow put on your forehead or on your hand, and that makes you clean from sin. No, not his literal blood, but his literal death. His literal death in our place. And the literal wrath that the Father poured out upon him on our behalf. And my friends, his blood paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Can I just bring a word of comfort to you here this morning? And, and please listen carefully, because I, I know for a fact there's, there have to be some hearts here this morning burdened by this. The work of Jesus on the cross doesn't just deal with the guilt of the sin that might send you to hell. It also deals with the stain of the sin that would hinder our continual relationship with God. We need to come to God often with the simple plea, cleanse me by the blood of Jesus, not because we haven't been cleansed before, but because we need to be continually cleansed to enjoy continual relationship. Now, friends, can I just focus on one word in verse 7 and bring this point home to you? Look at it in verse 7. It says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from, and here's the word I want to focus on, cleanses us from all sin. Look at it. See it on your page. If you write in your Bible, underline it. But I need to ask you, more importantly than underlining it, do you really believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that it says, from all sin? We can be cleansed by the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf from all of our sin. From the sin that we inherited from Adam. From the sins that you committed as a kid. From the sins of our growing up. Sins against our father. Sins against our mother. Sins against our brothers and sisters. Sins against our husbands. Sins against our wives. Sins against our children. Sins against our employers and our employees. Friends, sins against our friends, sins against our enemies, they can all be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Lying, stealing, cheating, adultery, swearing, drugs, booze, promiscuity, murder. 
all cleansed. Sins that haunt me every day. Sins that I don't even know I did. Friends, all sin can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. There's not a single reason in the world why anybody needs to walk out of here this morning haunted by the guilt or the cloud of your sin. It can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Now I want you to notice what else it says in verse 7. It doesn't just say cleanses us from all sin. It says cleanses us from all sin. It's in the present tense, not in the future tense. It doesn't say that one day we might be cleansed. No, it's an accomplished fact. We don't have to hope that one day we will be cleansed because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. I can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus today. Right now I can receive that cleansing. And B, as the Bible says, white as snow before him. There are some things that happen in our lives that are so striking to us that our mind kind of starts telling ourselves, did that really happen or not? You know, we almost like want to deny that it even happened. And my friends, we just wonder, you know, can it even be real that that could, we think back, if I could turn back the clock and change it to where that never happened. Friends, the cleansing blood of Jesus can turn back the clock, can make it clean, new, that had never been done. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make white as snow, the Bible says. Well, he's going to talk more about this idea of confession and cleansing coming into verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I think we need to think very carefully about what Sean's saying here. Because I bet if I were to sit down and and poll every one of you, or every person on the street, if you would go and and, and interview people down at the shopping mall, and put a microphone in front of them and say, do you believe that you're perfect? I don't think a single person would say, I believe that I'm perfect. But if you went around and said, do you believe that you're a sinner? I bet you get a much different reply. You see, we can all agree with the idea that I'm not perfect, that I make mistakes, but that's a different thing than from saying that I am a sinner. See, John has introduced to us the idea of walking in the light and being cleansed from sin, but he doesn't for a moment tell us that a Christian can be sinlessly perfect. Now, this idea doesn't really... um, uh, come up too much in our modern world today, but there have been times in church history where the doctrine has really come around that people or that Christians can be sinlessly perfect. There have been Christians who have taught that you can come to a place of perfection in your Christian life where you just stop sinning. You just don't sin anymore, period. I heard a story, and it's probably not true, but it's one of these great stories about this famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, hundreds, a hundred years or so ago in, in uh, England, where he was at some dinner and some guy got up and started claiming about how for the last five years he had walked in sinless perfection. In the last five years he had not sinned. And again, the story's probably not true, but it's a funny story nonetheless. And so the guy sits down after dinner and supposedly Spurgeon went over and picked up a pitcher of ice water and dumped it on the guy's head. And the guy got really ticked off. And, you know, ah, this. and Spurgeon just laughed and he said, there goes five years of sinless perfection down the drain. <laughs> Well, what a joke. You know, nobody walks five years in sinless perfection. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
But I don't think that that's the problem. You know, you know, people don't walk around saying, well, I'm sinlessly perfect. But how many of us really think that we sin? You know, I know we're all willing to say, well, look, I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I'm only human. But honest, when we say things like that, what are we doing? We're excusing ourselves. We're defending ourselves. It's a much different thing than coming down calmly and straight and say, I am a sinner. And to say that I have no sin or to refuse to acknowledge that I am a sinner puts us in a very dangerous place. Do you know why? Because to whom is God's mercy and God's grace extended? My friends, to sinners. To sinners. And if you don't recognize that you are a sinner, you're not going to receive God's mercy and grace. My friends, it doesn't say that God's mercy and grace is extended to mistakers or the I'm only human crowd or the nobody's perfect crowd. It's extended to sinners. And we need to realize the real victory and the real power and the real forgiveness that comes from saying, I am a sinner. I'm a great sinner. But I have a Savior who cleanses me from all sin. And I just wonder, and I'm our own way, we just are very slow to believe that we're sinners. Oh, sometimes we'll say it because it sounds spiritual. You know, I heard another story. Every preacher is going around, he's talking with a lady, and the lady comes to him, sounds very spiritual, gets that spiritual tone of voice, you know. Oh, pastor, I know that I am such a great sinner. And the pastor says, yeah, I, I really think so. You are a great sinner. And the lady gets all offended because it's fine as long as she's saying it about herself. Well, that's very spiritual. But as soon as the point's really brought to home, well, maybe I'm not, so that, I'm not that bad after all, pastor. My friends, we are. We're sinners, but we have a great savior. And so I believe Satan has two different strategies here. The first strategy is to convince us that we're not really sinners, that we're just mistakers or the not perfect crowd or the I'm only human crowd. If he can convince you of that, then he's done something. Or the other strategy is to convince you that you're a sinner and then to lead you into despair. My friends, the most beautiful place to be is that I'm a sinner who has a great Savior in Jesus Christ. Well, he goes on here, verse Eight continues on the thought. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now pick it up at verse nine where he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friends, I can't read that verse without just getting a special feeling inside. When I was a very young Christian, I gave my life to Jesus Christ as a teenager. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so to speak. My parents are fine, wonderful parents and raised me in a, in a wonderful way, but our home was not a Christian home. I mean, I didn't learn the things of God from my parents. And as a teenager, I came to Christ and started memorizing verses of Scripture. And this is one of the first passages of Scripture that I ever memorized. And I'd say, if you don't know this one by heart, you better learn it. You better learn to be able to say, that simply if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it begins with confession, doesn't it? You see, if sin is present, it need not remain a hindrance to my relationship with God. I can find complete cleansing. I can be cleansed from all unrighteousness as I confess my sin. 
is I confess, and simply to confess means to agree with God about it. Do you agree with God regarding his opinion of your sin? You know, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 about two guys who came to pray, and one of them was a really religious guy. And he came to pray, and the guy standing next to him wasn't a religious guy at all. The guy next to him was a notorious sinner. And so the really religious guy stands before God, and he says, Lord, I thank you for what a godly man I am. I thank you for all the good things I do and all the people I help. And most of all, I thank you that I'm not like this filthy sinner standing next to me. And after he was done, the notorious sinner came and the Bible says that he beat his breast. He hit himself in the chest. He was so moved. And he simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man's prayer was answered. That man went home justified. Why? Because he agreed with God with who he was. When, when the religious man was standing up there telling God how great he was, what do you think God was doing? Agreeing? Nodding his head in heaven? God was saying, come on! Gira, who do you think you are? But when that man said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God said, you're right, that's who you are, and I give you my grace and my forgiveness. By the way, when he says, if we confess our sins, the term there is in the continual sense, the verb tense. In other words, it means if we keep on confessing, if we make a continual confession. And friends, our entire lives should be a continual confession before the Lord, continually asking for his forgiveness. Now, I need to touch on a point that may seem abstract or kind of out there to some of you, but I think it's an important point for me to make about this. Please understand that our sins are not forgiven because we confess. Let me say that again. Understand that our sins are not forgiven because we confess them. If that were the case, then a sin would not be forgiven unless you confessed it. My friends, have you confessed every sin that you've ever committed? Every time when you've fallen short of the glory of God? There's not enough time in our days, my friend. We'd be doing nothing. You should just quit your full-time job and just spend it confessing our sin, and then you still wouldn't get it all. And what if there was one sin that you forgot to confess? Well, then you'd end up in hell because you didn't get forgiveness for that one sin. No, my friends, we're not forgiven because we confess. But my friends, we're forgiven because our punishment was put upon Jesus and we're cleansed by his blood. Well, then why does John put an emphasis on confession here? Because confession is vital to maintaining relationship with God. And this is the context that he's speaking from. There are some of you here this morning hindered in your relationship with God because there's sin in your life that you won't confess before him. And I don't have to tell you what it is. You know right now because the Holy Spirit is speaking, if not shouting to your heart saying, confess that sin before me this morning. And my friends, you have to confess that sin. Why? Because you'll go to hell if you don't? No, I'm not talking about that. It's because you won't have relationship with God the way you need to have relationship with Him until you confess that sin, receive His cleansing, and have fellowship restored. Now, I could go through a big laundry list of sin and hope something clicks in your mind. I don't have to do that, though, because you know. I trust right now the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, and if you're in this place, He's shining a spotlight upon your life and saying, this is it. Confess this sin before me and have relationship restored. And might I say, and again, I could preach a whole sermon just on this. When you make your confession, do it right. 
I want to start a little campaign in the body of Christ across America that we might learn how to confess our sin again. Because most confession of sin that I hear today is so weak and wimpy and insipid. God must scratch his head and wonder what we're talking about at all. You know what I'm talking about. The kind of confession of sin that goes like this. Well, Lord, if maybe I might have done something wrong to offend you, then I'm sorry, but, you know, maybe you could see your way to forgive me. Well, what do you mean, maybe, if I kind of did something wrong? Either you sinned or you didn't. Be like the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or say like David when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. He said simply, I have sinned against the Lord. And make it plain and straightforward and call yourself for what you are and throw yourself on the mercy of God's justice in his court and he will forgive you. Because did you see that in verse 9? It's so glorious. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us. Because of Jesus' work, the righteousness of God is our friend. He would be unfair not to forgive you. Is anybody here going to say that God's unfair? That God's not faithful? That God's not just? Of course He is. And because Jesus took the penalty on your behalf, He'll forgive you. In our legal system, we have a such thing, and it's a good thing in our legal system, called double jeopardy, and that you can't put a person in double jeopardy. In other words, you can't try a person twice for the same crime. If you've been declared not guilty for a crime, they can't say, well, we didn't like how that trial went, let's have another one. My friends, God won't do the same thing to you either. If your sin has been forgiven and dealt with, if it's been judged in Jesus on the cross, God's not going to say, well, let's try him again. No, it's been dealt with forever at the cross. So my friends, we have a glorious, glorious promise and He concludes here, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My friends, I think every one of us should be uncomfortable with the idea this morning of calling God a liar. I don't think I'm going to find any volunteers. I'm not going to ask her any hands to be raised. Who wants to call God a liar? Friends, if we say that we have not sinned and that we don't need this continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus, and my friends, we are calling God a liar. My friends, I like how he ends. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, do you remember last week when we were taking a look at verses one through four? John told us who the word of life was at the very end of verse 1. And who was the word of life? It's Jesus Christ. So I think it's interesting how at the end of verse 10 where he says, his word is not in us if we deny that we've sinned. I wonder if Jesus is in us if we're denying that we're sinners. My friends, if we refuse to see sin in us, we show that Jesus, that the word is not in us. What a glorious promise we have before us right now this morning. You can be forgiven. I wonder if there's any more terrible word in the English language than the simple word unforgiven. A person is unforgiven. There's no chance. There's no cleansing. There's no restitution. 
My friends, the Bible says that you can be cleansed and the cleansing that was provided by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it isn't just for the person who comes to Jesus for the first time. It's for all of us who are walking with Jesus but know that we sin. And we can have that sin cleansed and come in tight with relationship with him again. I hope you're just pumped up to do it. I hope right now this morning you want to make a confession of sin to God and clear anything out of the way that would hinder your relationship with him. So let's do that right now as I pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to to silently confess your sin before God.